I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. And welcome to this latest episode of OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong. Before we get on to our topic today, I, I want to take a minute for a, a small digression. Now, I end each episode by thanking all of you for listening, and I always mean it. But this month has been incredible for the podcast. And I'd really like to make a special mention of it. So March has been absolutely huge for the podcast with a record-breaking spike in new listeners. Uh, This month, the podcast has spent a fair amount of time on the iTunes charts for uh, finance, as well as top 10 for economics podcasts, which is awesome for me as I actually listen to most of the other economics podcasts out there. Uh, So to be up there with them uh, is pretty cool. Uh, As I'm recording this, we are right on the cusp of having over a thousand listens this month alone. And I say all that to say this, none of that happens without all of you out there who have, for whatever reason, decided to occupy your valuable time by listening to me blather on about my passion, economics. And that means a lot to me. I hope that I'm making it worth it uh, by providing you with a, a worthwhile podcast, and I hope that I can keep doing that for you, you know, going on into the future. So, digression accomplished, let's get down to business. Today, we're talking about an issue that this podcast is, is really perfectly suited to cover, and that is the minimum wage. Now... I'm sure that all of you have have heard the debate from from both sides over increasing the minimum wage. But if you haven't, it it generally sounds something like this. People in this country who work 40 hours a week deserve a living wage. 
probably, look, in an ideal world, and, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get to this, I'm wondering what exactly the minimum wage should be. Why $15? Why not $35? Why not $55? Why not $100? If it, the number is crazy, and people, well, the businesses won't be able to survive. No, and that's no, just not true. It's not true. The person who is making the most money at the top of the business won't make as much money. Minimum wage up. Does that hurt business for you? It's, What's the impact? For, it's crushed us. So it's not just this year. It's been minimum wage increases the last three to four years on the restaurant industry. We employ a lot of people. The restaurant hospitality industry takes a lot of people to perform our show. So it's basically crushing us. It's taking our profits and they're disappearing. Anybody that works in America deserves $15 an hour living wage. Any, uh, we work for billion dollar companies that make $56 billion in profits a year and they're not, they don't have enough money to pay their workers a living wage to make sure that we're able to strive and survive out here. Now, of course, as we've pointed out many times and many economists have pointed out, trying to bring prosperity to workers by increasing the minimum wage is an exercise in futility because it sets off a wave of inflation and nobody is any better off relatively than they were before, except we just have inflation, which really arguably hurts everyone. But beyond that, there is now a new threat to these workers that they don't even see on the horizon, and that is the rise of the robots. Okay, that last one is less common. I cheated a little and pulled something from InfoWars. That's how much I care about keeping these shows engaging for all of you. I actually sat and watched way more InfoWars content than a normal human being should. So remember that, you know, as, as you're listening. The reason that minimum wage debates are, are perfectly geared towards this podcast is that very often they lack any sort of nuance that would make them remotely meaningful. Minimum wage is, or at least it can be, a complicated issue and should be treated as such. For whatever reason, everyone seems to feel that they need to take an entrenched side in this debate, and that whichever side that is needs to be absolutely right about their take on the issue. Now, the reason that this episode is called Some Thoughts on the Minimum Wage is that it's not going to be a definitive debate or even a definitive argument from me. I'm not taking a side here in this episode, and I'd encourage you to not do so either. I will, at a later date, set up a debate between qualified, thoughtful people with backgrounds in economics that honestly disagree and let that play out for you. For now, before we even get to that level, I'd like to offer a kind of primer on the subject, just just to prepare everyone for what some of the potential complications that can come up when you're talking about minimum wage can be. This is all going to be food for thought. And I do think that it's important to train yourself to not immediately jump on a bandwagon when a controversial issue comes up. The, the tribal nature of politics unfortunately tends to drive people to doing that. We see people shouting about something, and instead of trying to absorb the debate, we find out which side of, of the line where we line up with politically and take that position, hook, line, and sinker. It saves us from having to spend any amount of time 
digging into the issue and from potentially having to admit that good and bad points are being made from all sides. We, in effect, let our political leanings decide our position on the issues, rather than letting our position on the issues determine our political leanings. And that's not a great way to be. So let's dig into the topic. In all its wonderful and frustrating complexity, and start thinking about how we might feel about some of the pitfalls and trade-offs involved in it, without feeling the need to absolutely make up our minds, because, spoilers, there isn't a perfectly clear answer at the end of this. I know. Shocking. So one of the most common arguments against raising the minimum wage, or in some cases against even having a mandated minimum wage, is that it will cost jobs in the long run. Now, where the pundits get this is straight from some very basic microeconomic theory. Picture a basic supply and demand chart. And, and in this case, instead of looking at the market for product, we're looking at the market for labor. The upward sloping line is the supply of labor. And the downward sloping line is the demand for labor. And where they intersect is the market price for labor, otherwise known as a wage. Like all microeconomic theory, this is this intersection point is the market equilibrium. It represents the correct market price that comes from all market forces acting on it. It's the sweet spot where all things that affect the price that are in tension with each other come come to. In theory, it is the perfect price for whatever you're talking about, in this case, labor. Now, if you set what's called a price floor on this graph, which is exactly what it sounds like, it's a, it's a price that you cannot pay less than, what you will do is you're going to move that equilibrium. Again, picture the chart with supply and demand uh, forming an X then draw a horizontal line across the top part of the chart. That horizontal line is your price floor. Now the point at which the horizontal line intersects the demand line is the equilibrium. What you've done with that price floor was to move the intersection point further back on the demand line, effectively reducing the demand for labor. And this theoretical model is how you get to the idea that artificially higher wages will reduce the number of jobs because the employer's demand for workers will go down. In theory. There are a couple points of contention that I have with this argument, but keep in mind that these points are not against the model itself, but with how that model translates to reality. As we've talked about before, the theory is sound. I mean, it's right there on the chart. But in economics, we can't just take the simplified model as, as rote fact. The theory is a starting point. It's a way to frame the discussion that follows. The, the theory is correct. A pl price floor will reduce demand. But we all know that things get a little murkier when we bring that theory 
out of the textbooks and drop it into the real world and all of the exogenous and endogenous variables that come with that. So let's start by calling the models bluff. Let's, in the real world, set a price floor on labor in the fast food market at a point so high on the graph that demand for labor should be zero. Now, in the real world, does that mean that McDonald's is simply going to fire all of its employees because the graph told them to? I doubt it. McDonald's needs employees to make money. Even if the cost of the employees went up, they would still need them to continue to make money. So they probably wouldn't just throw their hands up and say, well, I guess we can't make money anymore. The, the price of labor is too high. What they would likely do is try to find cost savings elsewhere to compensate for the higher wages that they now have to pay. This could involve reducing their labor force. But even though the graph says that the demanded labor should be zero, it's unlikely that it would actually be zero, at least at first. Because here's where we take the logical progression to a point where I wind up kind of agreeing with the guy from InfoWars. Please, please don't tell anyone that I just said that. Let's, let's just keep that between us for now, okay? So McDonald's, and by the way, I'll, I'll be using fast food as the example throughout this episode because it's the minimum wage labor market that is most often in the news, and I'll usually be using McDonald's as the example because they're the largest firm in the fast food market. It's not meant to single them out. All fast food restaurants engage or would engage in the same kind of things that we're going to be talking about here. I guess I, I just figure with billions and billions sold, McDonald's is successful enough that they don't need to care what I think of them. Anyway, McDonald's is going to see the mandated increases in wage. And they'll keep turning out burgers. They, they may reduce their staff somewhat, but not entirely. But... While they do this, the higher wages are going to create an unintended consequence. It's going to become their, their biggest bit of overhead expenses. What they'll do, which we know because they are in fact doing it, is invest in research and development for automation. Basically, they'll invest money into figuring out how to further reduce the number of expensive employees they actually need. Thus reducing their overhead back to what it was before the price floor was introduced. And the problem with this is that once they hit the point where it makes financial sense to research automation, there's no putting that genie back in the bottle. Once the money has been invested and the touchscreen ordering computers have been built and tested, even if the price floor were removed, McDonald's would still replace their employees with these things because regardless of lower wages, the machines are still cheaper. So that's a very real risk that you run when implementing a price floor or a minimum wage. If the price floor is too high, it'll create incentives to eliminate labor from the equation entirely. And in previous decades, 
that might have sounded like a, a sci-fi bluff, but I think we all know that today it's very feasible. And again, McDonald's is in fact doing this uh, somewhat in response to the push for higher wages and somewhat because they were probably going to do it anyway. Touchscreen ordering systems are being installed and tested in locations across the country, and they're poised to replace all McDonald's cashiers if the cost of those employees gets too high. Of course, I'm, I'm not sure how full, a fully automated McDonald's would really go over with customers. I mean, you may be saying, well, it'd be great because every time I go to McDonald's, they screw up my order. But one of the things that consumers typically care a lot about is customer service. Maybe this is just me, but I'm really not thrilled by the idea of a fully automated restaurant. It just seems heartless to me. I don't know. But I'm just not sure that consumers would be delighted by McDonald's turning its restaurants into, well, big vending machines. And for as many times as you've had a fast food order screwed up, you've always been able to just take the food back to the counter and get it fixed. How many times have you had trouble getting a vending machine to accept a wrinkled bill? Or gotten your snack caught in the, the little swirly thing on the machine? I'm sure that there would be a few living employees remaining to take care of things like this, but thinking that an automated system would eliminate screw-ups is more than a little delusional. What happens when there is a fault? What happens when your custom order isn't an available option in the computer's programming? The point is, the automation solution applies when you're talking about manufacturing, because robots can build things faster and cheaper than human employees. But we're talking about a market here which is based around customer service, and I'm not sure if machines will be as effective when they're used to replace people here. McDonald's sales are already slipping. A year ago, they posted a 1.3% a decline in sales across the U.S. Now, they attributed this to economic uncertainty and falling grocery prices. But I think that it may have more to do with being a business in the service industry that cares less and less about customer service. There's another important point to make when thinking about the microeconomic model for price floors. There's a hidden assumption being made when applying the model to the current debate over the minimum wage, and it's a pretty important one. By saying that an increase to the minimum wage would adversely affect demand for labor, it relies on the assumption that the increased minimum wage is above the market equilibrium. Thing is, we don't really know if it would be, because we don't definitively know what the market equilibrium wage is. We tend to operate on the assumption that the current wages being offered by fast food restaurants is the market equilibrium, but there are a few reasons to suspect otherwise. 
what I don't think that most people realize is that whether correct or not, the idea that wages are currently where they're where they are supposed to be, that the wages are currently at equilibrium, is just an assumption. As far as I've been able to see in my research, and, and feel free to correct me on, on the Facebook page if you know better, but I haven't found anyone out there who has definitively calculated what the equilibrium price for labor in the fast food market should be. There are, of course, equations for such things, but these are based on the theoretical model that we've been referring to. What I'm talking about is someone spitting out a single number. In reality, not in theory, but in reality, the intersection point of supply of labor and demand for labor is here. Thus, the equilibrium price for labor is $7.48, or whatever it might be. Now, I would assume that no such definitive answer exists here because, as with many things in economics, while the overall theory is fairly easy to demonstrate on a simple graph, the reality is near impossible to actually calculate. After all, how exactly do we solidly calculate demand? We know that demand goes up when prices are low and down when prices are high, and that makes sense. But actually calculating the slope of the demand curve in a real market with real people and real variables, that's pretty tough. So one should ask, if we don't know, and I mean know exactly down to just a simple number, what the true equilibrium price for labor in the fast food market is, do we really know whether or not a $15 minimum wage is above or below it? I'll let that sink in for a second. Now, typically, in functioning markets, it's not a bad assumption to assume that market prices are the equilibrium prices. Market forces should create the necessary tensions to bring the price to where it should be. Now, I, I am stealing the term tension from uh, political science, but I think that it applies pretty well here. In poli-sci, it refers to the dynamic in governments that are intentionally meant to be working against each other to ensure that where we actually end up is somewhere in the middle, a balance. If you've got two branches of your government constantly contending against each other, and they're equally balanced, then neither branch will ever win and that balance struck by both sides pulling in a kind of tug of war keeps everything where it should be. So in the market for a product, the tension is created between the consumer, who wants to pay as little as possible for the product, and the producer, who wants to charge as much as possible for the product. These two groups, pulling in the direction of their own self-interest, creates a balance where the price is as high as it can be and as low as it uh, can be when both forces are acting on. But this happens because the power dynamic between the two factions here is equally matched. If the producers insist on too high of a price, the consumers can simply decline to buy the product, and the producers get nothing. If the consumers insist on too low of a price, 
the producers can simply decline to produce the product, and no one gets anything. That's a balanced tension. But the market for labor doesn't have quite the same balance. The employers need employees to make money, and the employees need jobs to make money. But if the employers went without employees for a few months, they would generally be fine. They wouldn't make any money, but these are generally fairly wealthy people we're talking about here. They can afford to not make money for a little while. It's why labor strikes can go on for months sometimes. But the employees don't always have that same luxury, especially when you're talking about employees who work in the market of low-skill, low-paid jobs. These employees, or at least prospective employees, may not have significant savings, and thus cannot afford to be out of work for very long. This power disparity in the tension between employer and prospective employee may be distorting the market price for labor in these markets, away from what the equilibrium price should be. After all, if you have no savings, maybe you take a job that pays less than what it should because you've got to pay rent. And it's better to take a job at a lower wage so you can make some money to pay that rent rather than stand on your principles and be homeless. Now, the counter to this idea would be that wages couldn't be higher because profit margins in the fast food industry are already razor thin. I've seen estimates at somewhere between 2.6 and 3.2% higher wages would blow those margins and make the whole industry unprofitable, leading to market failure. So we must be at equilibrium, because if fast food restaurants were underpaying their employees, then the margins would be higher. Okay, that makes sense, or, you know, enough sense, I suppose. But... There's a complication, because of course there is. Because now we have to ask whether or not there are any other variables that could be affecting this outcome. What I'm getting at is the possibility that employees are being artificially underpaid, but the profit margins stay so low because fast food restaurants are keeping prices for their products artificially low as well. Now, this is not fully researched. I want to be clear about that. This has been an idea that kind of gnaws at my mind every once in a while, but the numbers that I'm going to roll out in a little, are they're really just some quick back-of-the-napkin math. What I'm saying is that this isn't definitive, but it's worth thinking about. The reason this idea entered my mind was that I was thinking back to a feature on the McDonald's menu that I'm sure you may have heard of, the dollar menu. Now, the dollar menu was partially introduced in 1991. It wasn't nationwide, and the, the items on the menu would shift over the years, and it wouldn't become standardized across all locations until 2002. But I remember it being rolled out near me 
back in 1991. Now, the idea of a menu of fairly consistent items being priced at a dollar over the course of 27 years, well, it makes my economic spidey sense tingle because, well, shouldn't those items be affected by inflation? The value of the dollar in 1991 was greater than the value of the dollar in 2018. So how are they charging the same price for the same item? Now, there are several perfectly legitimate explanations for this. Maybe they're using it as what's called a loss leader, meaning that you undercharge for that item to get people in the door and spending money on other things. Maybe. They could have created efficiencies in their logistics or could have uh, been reductions in overhead expense during those same years that matched or nearly matched inflation, thus keeping the real and nominal price for the menu item the same. It's possible. Inflation is driving nominal prices up, but the, the price of beef goes down at the same time or... You can get your buns much cheaper, so price effectively stays the same. But there is another possibility. It's possible that McDonald's wanted to keep the, the cachet that came with items being priced at only a dollar. It's a nice, round, low number. It's enticing to customers that they could come in with a couple of singles and get a, get a whole meal. So they kept the pricing at a dollar. But over the years, as that same dollar became worth less and less than it was originally, McDonald's had to find a way to cut other costs in order to not have to raise their prices to match inflation. Of course, in an industry like fast food, there are two big options for cutting overhead to keep your prices low. You can reduce quality decreasing the size of the patty, the quality of the meat in it, creating additives and preservatives to keep your food from rotting so you can use it longer. The other option for reducing overhead, of course, is artificially stunting wages to your employees. If you can get away with paying your people less than they should be, it makes up for the lost profits from not charging the real price for your products. Now, there is some evidence of that kind of artificial price suppression besides just the dollar menu. If we look at the price of a basic McDonald's cheeseburger over the years, in 1955, it would cost you 19 cents. And in 1972, it would cost you 33 cents. If we adjust for inflation, a 1955 cheeseburger would be 30 cents in 1972. So in 1972, McDonald's was actually charging slightly higher than the real price for their product. Now, in 2018, that same cheeseburger will cost you $1. Compared to the 1972 price adjusted for inflation, a 1972 cheeseburger should cost $1.97. So McDonald's today is charging a little less than half of what they really should be charging. 
It's actually worse if you adjust for inflation from 1955 to 2018. The 1955 burger at 19 cents should cost $2.79 today. Okay, before you jump out of your seat, and search for the we got him button. We got it. We got it. Yeah, before you do that, there are a few hitches. First, real price disparity doesn't hold across all menu items. A quarter pounder is only 38 cents cheaper than it should be in real dollars. And a Big Mac is actually 12 cents more expensive than it should be. Also, these comparisons are based off of average menu prices across the country for 2018, but only a single picture of a McDonald's menu from 1972 that I was able to find. I couldn't find national averages for 1972, which you would want to use for a definitive comparison. McDonald's menu prices do change depending on where you are. If that picture of the 1972 menu was from a location in Lower Manhattan, then those prices would be higher than the national average. And don't forget that, as I mentioned before, there are any number of exogenous variables that might be affecting prices that would need to be controlled for before we could say with absolute certainty that prices are being artificially kept low. The cost of hamburger buns could have taken a nosedive in 1998. Beef prices could have gone down in 2005. Continued economies of scale could allow McDonald's to transport its goods more efficiently than they could have in 1972, thus leading to cost savings. Like I said, this was some back-of-the-napkin math to see if there was any there there. It's certainly worth looking into further, and I might, because this could make for an interesting paper. But it's not definitive. So, other considerations when we're talking about minimum wage... I do think that it's important for those who advocate for raising the minimum wage in order to help out current fast food employees. It's important to know that there, there's a decent chance that it wouldn't do that. You, you have to remember that a significant wage increase will have an effect on demand outside of how much labor is, in, is demanded. A significant wage increase would also affect the demand of labor for those jobs. If you're currently in a job that you feel is a, a lot more challenging and a lot less satisfying than a career in fast food, and you're making $14 an hour, and suddenly the wages for fast food employees go up to $15, why wouldn't you switch jobs? Now. If your old job required that you had an, uh, an associate's degree to, to work there, you're going to make for an impressive candidate in the world of fast food. And if this scenario isn't just you, but applies to several thousand people with higher qualifications than the current employees of McDonald's, then McDonald's will probably create a new standard for prospective employees. 
they'll insist that they hold an associate's degree and have some work experience. After all, they're paying $15 an hour. What I'm trying to say is that if you push wages to $15 an hour, then the, the people who are going to want that job are people who feel that because they're qualifications, they should be making $15 an hour. And it's possible that those new employees are going to force out the current ones and ensure that someone who doesn't have those qualifications won't be able to get a job there. The type of prospective employees rises to the level of the wage. It's possible that even if they're not replaced by machines, a, a higher wage would still put many of the current fast food employees out of a job. Then, for those opposed to raising the minimum wage, claiming that it would bankrupt the fast food restaurants, you can't ignore the potential multiplier effects that come with raising wages. When people, especially people on the lower end of the income spectrum, have more money, they tend to spend it on things. The influx of income and disposable income among fast food employees is going to have an impact on the economy as a whole. And that impact can be self-reinforcing. Think about it this way. If a fast food employee suddenly finds themselves with twice as much money as they used to be making, they're going to buy things with it. They're going to buy a new phone. Uh, they're going to buy new tires for their car because they've been putting that off for a while. They're going to go out to a movie in an in a actual movie theater, all with their newfound income. As a result, the people who sell phones will turn more units. And if, they've, if, if they are in fact paid on commission, they're going to make more money. The guy who sold him the tires is going to make a sale that he otherwise wouldn't have. And the movie theater will sell tickets that they otherwise wouldn't have. And don't forget that the increased sales will drive the people who make phones and tires and movies to respond to the spike in demand and hire more employees to manufacture more phones and tires and to make more movies. And with the extra money that the phone salesman and the auto mechanic and the theater employee and the phone manufacturer and the tire manufacturer and the studio employees have, maybe they go out to one or two more meals at fast food chains than they would have otherwise been able to afford. And the cycle continues. Now, when we're talking about multiplier effects, we need to restrain our excitement because there's a lot of ways that this kind of thing can peter out and not create the economic utopia that it sounds like it would. But at the same time, we shouldn't dismiss the value of this kind of thing. The economy, the, the big economy, runs on this kind of interconnected flow of money. I'd also like to point out, again, for, for those in favor of, of raising the minimum wage, and especially to those who are advocating for doing it on the national level, there's a problem. Cost of living varies wildly across the entire country. And creating a price floor 
that is too high can be incredibly disruptive. Basically, what I'm saying is the cost of living in, in downtown Chicago is, is a lot different from the cost of living in Kankakee. Uh, it's a rural area south of Chicago. Trying to force fast food restaurants in both locations to have the same wage is either you're either going to wind up undershooting for downtown Chicago, where the cost of living is much higher, or you're going <laughs> to way overshoot for Kankakee, Illinois, and you're going to actually put those those restaurants out of business. It's important to remember geography when we're talking about things like uh, the minimum wage because it isn't very productive to, to push that kind of across-the-board line uh, when you have the kind of wild swings in, in cost of living that we do across the United States. One last point. And this is one that just kind of always irks me whenever I hear people saying it. Those opposed to raising the minimum wage for fast food workers will typically point out that the wages for these jobs should be low because they are for low-skilled workers. Working in fast food doesn't require advanced education or training. It's not an art form. It's not the kind of thing that takes years of practice, and it doesn't require an unusual amount of physical or mental exertion. You take the order, you assemble the hamburger, you put it in a bag, and you hand it to the customer. Not requiring any special skills or abilities, why should an employee be here be making $15 an hour? It's an incredibly con condescending argument, especially coming from pundits on news shows whose whole job is to sit and spout their opinion for about 15 minutes a day, and who will never be held accountable if their opinion is wrong, because by the time that comes up, we've all moved on to the next story, and these people are making way more than $15 an hour. But what these overpaid pundits don't account for when they say things like that is that Skill is not the only factor in determining salary. If that were the case, they'd probably be making a lot less than they are right now. Now, there are a lot of factors that go into determining what a wage should be. Working as a garbage man may not require an extraordinary amount of skill or formal education, but it's not considered a particularly pleasant job and so the offered wage has to be higher to incentivize people to want the job. Being a prison guard doesn't require a postgraduate degree, but it can be a dangerous job, so the wage needs to be higher than what you might imagine for the skill level to incentivize people to take the job. One of the other factors that gets considered when calculating wages is the responsibility that's inherent to the job. It's why your boss, who may have never worked in your job, who may not have the skills necessary to do your job, he gets paid more than you do. They may like the skills, but they're being paid to be responsible for you and all of their employees' output. 
you do your job, but they're overseeing 40 people all doing that job. And responsibility is something that probably should be compensated when it comes to wages. So think about this. The person working the drive through at the McDonald's that you've just pulled up to, they might not have particularly high skills, and their job may not require particularly high skills, but they're handling your food. They're preparing and packaging and providing you something that you're going to put into your mouth and ingest. The responsibility that they have to not serve you something that they dropped on the floor or sneezed on or undercooked is pretty high. I don't know if that kind of responsibility should be rated at $15 an hour, but it's certainly something to be considered. In the end, I don't think that I've wrapped this up in a way that might steer you towards a conclusion on the issue. And like I said at the top, that's not really what I'm going for here. This episode lacks a strong conclusion because it's meant to be a string of thoughts that hopefully spur you to think a little more deeply about the issue. I'm sure most of you already have an opinion or a position on raising the minimum wage. It's an issue that's been going on for far too long for me to think that I might have gotten to you first. But if I've said anything here that makes you reconsider your stance, whatever that stance might be, then I think I've succeeded. Minimum wage is a lot more complicated and a lot hairier than any of us might want to admit. There are solid arguments for it. There are solid arguments against it. And then there's all this partisan noise that occupies the majority of the debate. Once I can lock down the right people, I do want to have an economist who's in favor of raising the minimum wage and and one who's opposed to it on the show to have a civil debate on the issue and hopefully provide all of you with something closer to an answer to the question. But that'll have to wait for a later episode. For now, maybe just approach the topic with a little less certainty and be receptive to the points made by the opposition when those points are valid. And that's our show. As always, if you'd like to tell me why I'm wrong, uh, come on out and join us on the Facebook group. Uh, Just uh, search, okay, let me tell you why you're wrong on Facebook. And uh, yeah, you can come on, post a comment, uh, suggest a topic for a future episode. Uh, If you are not a Facebook user, you can always just email me directly at okay, let me tell you why you're wrong at gmail.com. That's uh, all one word, no comma, no apostrophe. Uh, be sure to take a minute and, and give the podcast a rating and a review on iTunes. Uh, again, if, if, you're, if you are an avid podcast listener, you hear probably every podcaster say this. Uh, and we all say it because, again, the, those ratings and reviews really do boost our, our visibility in the iTunes charts and help us get new listeners. Uh, as always, I'd like to thank George Sacco, uh, who composed the music I use in the intro and outro of the show. Uh, don't forget, I do have another podcast out there. It's called Let's Plan a Wedding. 
And uh, it's where my fiance and I discuss things involved with planning our wedding. Uh, and it's, uh, it's going pretty well. And of course, once again, thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, we will be back next week with The Wealth of Nations, Book 1, Chapter 7. And then back in two weeks with another topic episode. With that, I've been Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong. <laughs>